Type 7, The Entertainer. So I've always asked myself, what would your walkout song be? You know, like when professional baseball players come out and there's the song playing over the whole stadium, or like when fighters walk up and they're looking all tough and they get a walkout song. I can't have that because it's super, I'm a filmmaker, and so it'd be super weird to have a walkout song play uh, in on the set. But So I figured this would be a good time to do that. So take it away, Tina. So you're not going to listen to that song and not get energized. Like if I'm at a wedding and Ike and Tina comes on or James Brown or Jackson 5, see you later. I'm on the dance floor, no question. All right, there it is. A walkout for a seven. As Abraham Lincoln once quibbed, with the catching ends the pleasure of the chase. And that, in a nutshell, defines the motivation and experience of the seven. A seven undoubtedly trademarked the phrase FOMO, as boredom and missing out on new experiences is the bane of a seven's experience. Sevens are energetic, charismatic, captivating, and elusive as they devote their life to collecting unique experiences or specialized knowledge on a wide variety of subjects. Pretty much any knowledge, and it doesn't have to do uh, with anything they do professionally. So this doesn't necessarily mean that it's book smarts uh, or book knowledge because school was not really my thing. I struggled academically through most of middle school and high school because there were literally hundreds of other things more interesting than homework. Hundreds. Uh, Playing Pogs was one of them. Shout out to Pogs. Not to get off topic here, but I had a Black Widow slammer. That was the shit. Like I, I cleaned up in elementary school. Famous sevens include John F. Kennedy, Joan Rivers, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, Larry King, Amelia Earhart, Elton John, Mozart, the 14th Dalai Lama, all the cool guys and gals. The basic characteristics of sevens are centered around their core desire to be happy, satisfied, and fulfilled, as well as their biggest fear of being deprived of pleasure and trapped in pain. That can be as simple as having to work for a company where I don't want to go to the offices every day and I don't want to be in the culture that's being created for the company. That feels like a form of imprisonment that I have to break out of. Um, to the most extreme example would be uh, my my great uncle, my grandmother's brother-in-law. He had Alzheimer's and I remember meeting him and um, seeing what the Alzheimer's had done to him basically. And my grandpa would tell me stories about how uh, lively he was and how big his personality was and how he could make friends with a stranger and how he would connect so deeply with people and just bring joy to the room. And I would know these things going into conversations with him and just feeling like there was a void of of a person, like someone's soul had literally been sucked out. Like I remember hearing a story that he would have to sit with a photo of his sons while he was on the phone with them so he wouldn't forget who he was talking to that terrifies me maybe there's a bit of ego in that like i don't want to be stripped of my personality like i'm so connected to this idea of like jake is this construct that god forbid i would lose my charm (laughs) but um man that stuff scares me that seems like an eternal form of imprisonment someone taking away your essence the thing that makes you you the thing that someone marries the thing that somebody calls upon as a memory when they think about you from high school or whatever. 
The lost childhood message for Sevens is that we will be taken care of. Rizzo and Hudson describe the childhood experience of Sevens as flavored by a largely unconscious feeling of disconnection from the nurturing figure, often but not always the biological mother. This does not mean that Sevens were not close to their mothers, but on an emotional level, they unconsciously decided that they would have to take care of their own needs. So she was not what you would call a nurturer for me. She did look out for me, but my mom was always of the idea that, um, you know, if you're going to go out into the world and you're going to pave your own path, that is dependent on you going out and paving your own path. I remember when I was in, uh, what was it, fifth grade, I went to a brand new middle school and she was a substitute teacher there and I had no friends. I transferred school districts that was miles away and I'm sitting there alone thinking, I got no friends at lunch, so what do I do? I go and I was eating lunch with my mom. And she was a good sport about it. She like let me in her office or in her classroom and I ate lunch with her for I think like 10 days or two weeks or something like that. And finally she just turns to me and it was like the moment in Sandlot when the mom opens the door and she's like, listen, Tommy, or whatever his name is, you got to get out there and go make friends. And she essentially kicks me out of her classroom. This like vulnerable fifth grader who's just trying to make sense of his loneliness. <laughs> but I ended up eating lunch by myself for the next week after she kicked me out. And she saw me eating lunch by myself when she would go to the teacher's lounge and she didn't run to me and she didn't try and save me. She didn't try and take care of my sadness by bringing me back into that womb, if you will, of her classroom. She kept me out in the open until I eventually made friends. And that was a defining moment that I'll never forget because what it taught me was it taught me that life is something that isn't always gonna be easy, but it's important that you show up and you become the person that you wanna be that she's not going to open the doors for me and she's not going to make sure that where I'm trying to go is, is paved. When sevens are children, they often stifle the fear or pain of being self-reliant by seeking another playmate, activity, competition, or toy. As a child, I grew up in a high-energy family that, well, did a lot. I distinctly remember my dad waking me up every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. to go get donuts and drink chocolate milk, go skipping rocks at the local pond, then go hit balls at the batting cages before picking up the rest of the family to head to the local theme park for a day of fun that ended in me slumped over asleep in the back seat of the minivan on our journey home. When it came time to decide what I wanted to be in life, I had made up my mind. A jet fighter pilot in the Navy, of course, and a professional baseball player and a middle school math professor. At 15, I thought I could actually pull it off. Decisions, decisions. Who needs to make decisions when the answer is always yes? Sevens are exhilarated by the rush of ideas and the pleasure of being spontaneous, preferring broad overviews and the excitement of the initial stages of the creative process to probing a single topic in depth. That is my cross to bear. I love new ideas. I just can't always stick with them. Which, for my line of work, is perfect because I'm a freelance filmmaker, which means I get to jump from project to project at a very rapid pace. For some people, that sounds like torture and super ungrounded, but for me, if things aren't constantly changing, I'm stressing. When our options are eliminated by others, we can begin to experience stress, frustration, anger, or disinterest towards those parties forcing us to commit. 
For this reason, sevens are infamous for being difficult in relationships and tend to get married later on in life, at least later than other types. Yeah, that's funny because for me, like I, I married, that's a long-term commitment. That's like a lifelong term commitment. I've been in long-term relationships my whole life. I'm like a very relationally like committed person. I didn't have like flings. So I don't, but I can get how I, like the intrigue with someone can be really heightened and can be really um, energizing. The wings of a seven. What wings are basically the, the numbers that are just adjacent to the number that you identify with. So in case you're unaware of what wings mean, sevens with a six wing are called the entertainer. This subtype is both productive and playful. They have sharp minds and usually lead with a sense of humor about life while being able to connect with a wide array of people. Pride myself in that. While they can be highly organized, efficient, and creative when healthy, they can also become scattered and highly anxious as they fear missing out on the next best thing. Unhealthy entertainers become dependent on strong experiences like toxic romances and substance abuse. And overall, this type of, is a powerful force of human connection and communication. I, It's funny, reading that, obviously, you're going to be flattered. You're like, crushing it right now. I'm I'm a good communicator, good human connection, but then there's like the darker sides of it, right? The toxic romances and the substance abuse. I never really went down that route. I remember when I was going through art school and I I remember wishing, this is so dumb, but I remember wishing that I had more darkness in me. I was like, man, if I'm going to make something meaningful here, it's got to I got to be darker. Like I got to have like demons that I'm wrestling with, which now reflecting on it, it's so immature to be like, I wish I had a more fucked up childhood so I had more to talk about. And also this sense of wanting to be taken seriously. As you grow up as an adult, I think I wrestled with the entertainer wing as feeling like people were going to take me less seriously because I was an entertainer. I, there was a sense of playfulness Um that it almost got roped into a naivety. And I finally, I, I, I finally came to terms with the fact that the entertainer is just naturally inside of me. And I like it. So I, I stopped fighting it and I leaned into it. All right, so sevens with an eight wing are called the realist. This subtype climbs social ladders like nobody's business. When healthy, we combine quickness with drive, often leading to material successes and positions of power and prominence. We're determined to get what we want. Like six wing sevens, we're still high on humor, but it expresses itself in a biting wit with a love for the outrageous. Think family guy. Wing eight splits their energy in several different directions often multitasking or even multi-careering in the world. We often have strong desires to accumulate possessions and experiences, generating fun activities more so than seeking deep intimate relationships. Realists tend to be looking for a partner, not a romantic fantasy figure. They're not afraid to be alone and are abundantly clear with their boundaries and expectations up front. They tend to tolerate a lot less than the entertainer. The instinctual variance of the seven 
When it comes to the self-preservation instinct, sevens are determined, energetic people driven to make sure that their basic needs and comforts will always be met. They tend to be ambitious and work hard to ensure that options will always remain open for them. I find that the self-preservation conversation shows up in my work as a freelance filmmaker. Being able to say no to projects is as important to me as being able to say yes to projects. In a less healthy self-preservation state, we can feel impatient and panicky when our needs and comforts are not swiftly met. We can get extremely demanding and cranky when this frustration sets in. This is when we become relentless in our pursuit of attaining what's missing, occasionally aggressively and recklessly. In the recklessness, our spending, eating, and pleasure habits can fall out of control, even to the deterioration of our physical and mental health. Gluttony, of course, is our characteristic vice. When it comes to the social instinct, as sevens, we love to surround ourselves with people, especially mentors and advisors that are enthusiastic about the same things as we are ourselves. We love getting involved, but will become frustrated and bogged down when the organizations become ineffective or inefficient and leave for a more effective endeavor. We are caught in the conflict between the desire to fulfill our commitments and the desire to go off and do our own thing. Unhealthy social sevens can be big planners without much follow through and get sucked into dangerous groups such as cults, which by the way, I love cults. Not being in them, because I'm not, I don't think, but any documentary or story about cults, super into. I just crushed Wild Wild Country. Whoa. If there was another one out right now, like, oh, it's a different guru with a different cult in it, I would watch the whole thing. When it comes to our sexual instinct, we're always looking for an intense charge of being alive. We're attracted to those that are interesting and refreshing. As you might guess, we'll ambitiously do what is necessary to land their attention by direct, witful approach. Overwhelmed in curiosity, we'll do what we can to instill mutual infatuation. We're guilty of fantasizing of future adventures and shared interests with this new person that may or may not be reciprocated or realistic. Our wild ideas, wit, and humor can often overwhelm and cause us a frustrating recklessness with ourselves or in the relationship itself. When less healthy, sevens can become fickle with interests and affections. Our fear of commitment often leaves us infatuated in the early stages and disinterested in the later stages. We fall in love, but reject the commitment that comes with it. We revel in romance and the discovery process, but as soon as the feeling becomes familiar, we're ready to explore other possibilities. We're guilty of falling for temporary distractions that end in disappointment by our own creation. So, okay, let's talk about disintegration. Under heavy stress, sevens can begin to feel that they need to restrain themselves like ones. They begin to work harder, feeling that they alone can do the job properly and attempt to impose limits on their behaviors. Underlying resentment can then bubble up and lead to scolding others or pretentiously educating them about the way the world works. God, that I hope I don't do that, but I'm sure I do. I de what's weird is that with disintegration and stress, I have this weird belief system like stress is my fuel. That's what keeps me going. Like I, I procrastinate. So that way I can have stress as my gas in my tank. I'm like, I have until 4.30 p.m. to deliver this thing. I have one hour and seven minutes. I cannot break concentration. I just go in a trance. Integration is when uh, you know, you're stable, self-accepting, and sevens look more like fives. 
uh, we tend to slow down the rapid activity of our mind in order to let our emotions and experiences impact us more deeply, which I really resonate with because there are moments where when I do take time to breathe and just let this moment be this moment and not think about where I'm going or think about what I'm going to do, it's beautiful. There's so many little treasures waiting in conversation or just in the visuals or the smells or the sounds. Yeah, I was I was talking to Colton about what it's like when I'm at my best and it feels like life is whizzing by, but it's going so slowly at the same time. Like how many days we're in this month? It feels like day number 75 of this month, um, but yet there's so much going on. It's kind of like being on a train where the inside of the train is still and calculated and you can you can balance a you can balance a quarter on itself on the table in front of you and outside things are flying now that we have that train metaphor behind us and everybody wants to now go buy a euro pass let's talk about growth signals um okay wake up calls and red flags what I mean when I say wake up call is it's a signal or a sign in your life that you might be moving from a healthy place to a more average place of operating. So a wake up call uh, for a seven is feeling that there's something better available somewhere else. So when this voice percolates inside your mind, what that's a calling card to is you might be slipping out of a, a healthy space into a more average space of existence. We all know that feeling. I don't think it's unique to sevens. I think we're just plagued with it all the time. Um, all right, so here's some practices to develop uh, in the health department to maybe ascend up the health ladder, if you will. So the first thing, notice when your mind's racing or freely associating unconnected ideas or tasks. Slow down, take a breath. Notice any fear, anxiety, and accept it as present, but not all powerful. Doesn't have to control you. Breathe. Process negative feelings. It's okay to dislike something or feel hurt by someone you love. There's no need to spin it or half process it so that the really bad part gets left out. Acknowledge it all. I learned this when I first started dating my wife. I had to come to grips. This is going to sound insane to some people, but I had to come to grips with not being on. I had to be okay with not being, um, I had to be okay with not being happy. When people say, how are you doing? If I wasn't feeling good, I had to be okay with not having to lie to myself and lie to them in that moment and say, I'm living the dream. No, you're not. You're bummed out. You're sad. Your life's not where you want it to be. You feel shitty about your trajectory, whatever it was in the moment. Saying that you feel negative is almost more powerful than, um, and accepting that you feel negative is more powerful than trying to turn it into something positive. It almost becomes positive in that sense. Here I am trying to spin it into something positive. Listen to your body. What does it feel like to be sad? What does it feel like to be angry? These questions will help you embrace the biological impact of your emotions. Notice your impatience. You have a profound ability to absorb things and move on. Many others call this superficial, but it's only because you have not taken the time to fully communicate what you know. Pause and really connect with yourself and others. 
Also, let everyone else move to their pace without judgment from you. Find joy in the ordinary. Sevens tend to seek out a heightened reality. We like things to be extraordinary and stimulating. Try to find the beauty in simple moments that reflect true satisfaction. Meditate. This will force you to sit down with the fullness of your experiences and allow your soul to catch up to your life. Meditation opens up the connection between this present moment and the eternal moment. This is my perspective of it, which is why I love it. I think that heaven is actually a place on earth, and I think meditation is the gateway to entering that garden. Don't worry if others don't share your joy. You don't have to demonstrate how to be happy to guide people to do it the way that you do it. Just enjoy yourself. Others will catch on in their own time or not. The Seven's Greatest Gift, Emergence of Essence. Sevens carry the mindset of appreciation through most of their worldly interactions. We tend to take full advantage of the joy God intended for us to experience in relationship with Him. We're less conflicted in taking part of the finer things in life that the world has to offer, appreciating them as simply gifts from the Father. When Sevens can free themselves from the endless chatter, planning and projects of our ego minds, we find a peaceful oneness with the Father. It brings about an abundance of energy and joy that everyone around us gets to enjoy the benefit of. Operating from gratitude isn't a hard undertaking for sevens. Our joy and appreciation for life emanates from our every interaction. Invitation to Abundance To joyously celebrate existence and share your happiness. I was in West Africa doing a documentary on... Um, the civil war and how the people living in the region weren't getting medical attention and so I went with a bunch of doctors and nurses and they were performing surgeries on people living in the rebel controlled territory up in the northern part of the re uh, country and the um, and one of the repairs that they were doing was called a fistula repair and what that is is that when small women have babies in the middle of Africa where there's not medical assistance uh, to push the baby through their pelvic region, which is too narrow, what ends up happening is they end up rupturing their bladder. And so to pass the baby, their bladder ruptures. And so what that does is then for the rest of their life, they leak urine. So the fistula repair is to stitch the bladder up so that way they're no longer a pariah. They don't walk around with the shame of urine constantly leaking over their body. Very sad. And there was a young girl who came in to get the fistula repair and she was dehydrated going into the operation and they did the operation. She was in the recovery and she, she died. She passed away. And, um, I remember, I remember everybody mourning from the American side of it that night, all the doctors, oh, I can't believe we let her die. And yeah, I can't, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what that feels like. I'm sure there's a lot of emotion tied up in losing a patient. But the next day I woke up and there was a funeral going on across the street at the, um, at the, at the nearest village and her family was all there and I wanted to go across the street and I wanted to pay my respects because I was there when she died. I was literally like standing next to her when she passed away and I felt a sense of obligation to just see her through the river sticks you know like just as she passed on to the next side and um and i got there and you could tell where it was because you could hear the sound of the drums from 
hundreds of yards away. And I got there and I was like, is this a wedding celebration or is this a funeral? People playing drums, dancing, singing. And you would only know that it was a funeral because she was laying there open. And I remember seeing her mom uh, wailing, flailing, and just falling all over the place, letting herself express. And they played this music to this sorrow and this pain, and people danced, and they shouted. And there was this knowingness that life is not about the death. It's about the celebration of life in response to death. And I just, that's always stuck with me. Celebrating existence, even in the midst of death, it's very powerful acceptance. The final thing that I was asked to share was this idea of a motto, something that guides my life, something that's uh, an undercurrent. And I, I didn't know what that was, and I was kind of struggling with this idea of a motto. It just felt like so final, like a motto. Is this going to be on my tombstone? Like, what is like, what is the significance of these words? It has to be profound. Um, and originally, what I had written was, it's just not that serious. And that guided a lot of what I was thinking about while I was sort of preparing for this whole podcast. And as I was going along, that um, that motto felt fun and it felt good but it didn't feel like it got to the core and then as i was working through it i realized that the motto that felt more true to me was maybe something better is actually something deeper because my desire as a seven to constantly be pursuing outward um what i learned about myself over year over the years and over the process of even speaking this out loud was that The gift isn't always waiting somewhere else. The gift can be waiting underneath the moment that you're in right now. And that it doesn't always have to be further. It can be deeper. So the motto that I landed on was maybe something better is actually something deeper. All right. Appreciate everybody. Play me me a really fun song to get us out of here. So give me some James Brown right now. I feel good. I knew that I would not I feel good I knew that I would not